everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Here it's always Saturday night. And I think we're going to have a really special show tonight because I have someone on as our guest who may be one of the most interesting people on the planet and uh, a person I've known for over 40 years. And uh, his name is Dr. Barry Taff. Hi, Barry. Hi, how you doing, Steve? Uh, thank you for the introduction. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, just so we know, Barry holds a doctorate in psychophysiology with a minor in biomedical engineering. He's a world-renowned parapsychologist who originally worked out of UCLA's former parapsychology lab from 1969 to 1978 as a research associate. I've known Barry uh, since I walked on a film set, and film sets are always interesting because you never know who you're going to meet in addition to the people making the movie, and I happened to be there on a movie called The Entity, uh, which uh, people remember as a very scary Barbara Hershey movie from the late 70s, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit because this is Saturday Night at the Movies, but with the opportunity to have Barry on the phone... I really would like to know a little bit more about my friend. Barry, um, what, what, when did you first discover in life that you had an interest in the paranormal? Well, let's just see. Okay, you're 10 years old in the fifth grade. And what got me into all this was my own experiences. Um, I remember on recess, the Carthay Circle, Carthay Center School, whatever it was, and everyone's out there playing in recess, you know, nice sunny day, and this little blonde girl walking toward me, her name was Christine, blue eyes, very cute, and she's wearing a long dress, blue, sky blue with a sunflower on it. Okay, so she's walking towards me, and this other element of my vision kicked in, which I didn't totally understand, but I knew I, it worked, and suddenly I could see under her dress there was a plastic bag on her side and a tube going to her body. So I went up to her and said, Chris, what's that tube and thing, that bag doing? And she ran and started screaming, yelling, got the teacher, they dragged me in the principal's office. And so the principal said, let's see, did you look under her dress or sneak in the girl's bathroom? What did you do? I said, I did neither. He goes, what are you talking about? I was looking at her and it just turned on. And he goes, what do you mean turned on? I said, you know, like, Superman's x-ray vision, you know, all right, mister, I'm going to have to call your parents. So he calls my mom, and he explained what happened. And my mom says to him, I would only hear his end of it because I wasn't on the line. And my mother, my mother said to the principal, Barry can do this. And the principal went, what? And she said, Barry can do this. What are you talking about? And he says, well, you're as crazy as your son. He hung up on my mother. And he turned to me, I said, I'll tell you this one more time, Barry, this happens one more time, even the suggestion, I will have you expelled from school and have you arrested. You're going to go to juvenile hall, you're going to go to jail. Uh, I said, uh, well, look at him. And then, so, after he started, stopped talking, I looked at him, I said, you got that scar from where your appendix was taken out. Now I call it a keloid, because I know the term, back then I didn't. And I said, it's always like a purplish color. And he turned purple on me, and green, and red, and yellow. He's freaking out. Yeah, I get out of my office. So I left out. 
the phenomena did happen again. I never spoke of it at the school. This is what got me into this because I thought everyone could do what I could do. Apparently, they can't. So this is where it started. And over the years, it got more pronounced where not only could I look through people like they were made of glass, but the day JFK was inaugurated, um, I bet my parents $25 that he would be killed around Thanksgiving of 63. And they go, what? I said, I'm just, how do you know that? I said, I don't know. I'm just, that's what's going through my head. That, so that's, the years real, that's, real, that's really creepy. Yeah. So when it happened, my parents and many of my friends didn't speak to me for quite some time. But, you know, other people are like this, but they may be wise enough not to utter it to people, not to discuss their own mental perceptions that are different from others. For so the, for, the, for those for, for those of you who are listening, you know, um, it's easy to dismiss all of these as the ravings of a nutcase. But I've I've known Barry for many years and I know that Barry is a scientist and he's a learned scientist, very well read. And a lot of the theories he has are based on his own research. Um, you you, st you came to UCLA. We're both UCLA uh, alumnus. How did, how, how did you end, end up going to um, Thelma, Thelma Moss's parapsychology lab? Okay. I knew of Dr. Moss by the late 60s. I knew her, I read about her and things she was doing. So I started writing her letters. And I called you know, the Neuropsychiatric Institute where the lab was. And I left messages with the switchboard. There was no email or anything like that. And she never returned the call. I sent her a letter, she never, uh, whatever. And then um, I was in lower undergraduate college and I met another product, uh, uh, research assistant of hers. And I talked to him about what was going on with me. And okay, so he, okay, uh, Dr. Moss wants you to come, come to her house and like she liked to talk to you. She lived a little ways from where we lived. She lived uh, just north of Pico and in Beverly Hills, I forget, Pico and Beverly Drive, around there. Okay. Um, nice little home. And, you know, I knew nothing about her other than the parapsychology work she did. I knew nothing about her past. So I walk and, and in she, and, and she was, Barry, she was the first professor in America to open a parapsychology lab. Is that true? Um, no, actually, I think the head was, um, oh, God, Dr. Ryan at uh, Duke University in North Carolina. Okay. But it, it, but the whole point is she was the first woman to do it. There was also uh, Gertrude Schmeidler at uh, City College in New York, did some research there. Um, but these were all, they weren't really that well-funded, but that's not the point. The point is I didn't know anything about, about Dr. Moss, and I, I'm talking to her. And she said, all right, stop telling me about what you've done. You do a psychometry where you hold objects and get perceptions from holding them. I go, yeah. So she gave me her keys. And the first thing I said, I see a fat, blue-eyed, blonde woman named Shelly who's always screaming around you. And that was an accurate, although unflattering, description of her best friend, which was the actress Shelly Winters. And I came up with some other things that made sense, and Thelma acknowledged yes. And okay, that's how it started. Not long after that, um, they started doing a study on me at UCLA, and it lasted a couple years. It was then published in a medical journal in 74, 75, Behavioral Neuropsychiatry. Okay, so the study of a psychic. Okay, great. If you're a psychic, I'm psychic. 
Um, but there were elements of the study that were so strange that the research journal would not publish the data. Um, okay, so you're telepathic, you can sense things at a distance and see what's going on that's nowhere near you and whatever, whatever you want to call it. But the, the electrophysiology work they did, the EEG recordings on me, were so bizarre that the journal thought that they were, the machines were all mal malfunctioning. I did three different labs at UCLA and got the same results. So anyway, that's how that began. I became a research assistant in the lab, and I was interested in two areas. One was remote viewing before it was called remote viewing. Um, we were doing at the lab, and uh, we tried to see if we could take normal, healthy, emotionally stable people who didn't know themselves to be psychic, if we could train them to become psychic, to develop abilities. And the results were, yes, we could, but a very small percentage of the people had a positive result. Most people came and went, it, you know, it's a hard thing to deal with because you're not in control of it. You have to let it happen. You can't make it happen. And this is on my website, uh, barrytaft.net. Um, it's an article called Learned Psy Training to be Psychic. And it goes into great detail of some of the work we did. So that, and then the other area of my interest was investigating hauntings and poltergeist cases. And over the course of the last, oh God, more than half, a little more than half a century, I've investigated thousands of cases, most of which begin and end with one visit. You're there, you interview the people, um, you take measurement of the environment and of the people, you ask a lot of very probing questions about their background, if they're on medication, for how long, what dosage, do they use any recreational drugs, blah, blah, blah. And once in a while, you're in the right place at the right time, and things happen. And that's where things become really interesting, because you're not just listening to people talk. You're witnessing, witnessing events that are supposedly impossible, or they can't be explained. So once in a blue moon, this happens. So, and so the... the, uh, the the case that later became uh, the entity, uh, which uh, that where I met you on that set. How did that begin? Okay, my, my colleague at the time, a man by the name of Carrie Gaynor, was talking to. They were in Hunter's Books in Westwood, which of course no longer exists. But they were talking about the work Carrie and I were doing, and on the next aisle, a woman and her friend heard the conversation and. She bothered to say, oh, excuse me, but uh, my house is haunted. And, okay, so Carrie took down her name and number. We'll call you and we'll set up a meeting. Okay, so on August 22nd of 1974, it was really hot and really humid. Carrie Gaynor and I went out to Doris Byther's house on Braddock Drive in Culver City. A little tiny shack of a house um, in disrepair. Didn't look very good. And we went in there and we started talking to a woman is named Doris Bither, B-I-T-H-E-R. She was evasive. She was cryptic in her responses. She wouldn't even give us her age, which made me very suspicious. And every time I tried to ask more detail, she kind of backed away. But one of the first things she said was, like it didn't mean anything to her. She'd been repeatedly raped by go by several ghosts, and I thought, oh, my God, this woman's psychotic. And both Carrie and I rolled her eyes back thinking, oh, God, this, we don't need this. 
And we talked with her. We said, look, we were not psychiatrists. And there's nothing we can do in this regard, but we refer you to some people. No, no, I don't know. Okay. So we spent maybe 45 minutes to an hour there. She told us of things. She said there were three entities, male entities. There were one bigger, older one, and then two smaller, younger ones. And, of course, she happened to have three male children, one bigger, older one, and two smaller, younger ones. And anyway, she claimed two smaller entities wherever were hold her down and the big one would rape her over and over again. You can't prove it, you can't disprove it. It's a big yeah, right, what if. So we thanked her for her time and we left. What were we supposed to do? We thought, boy, we thought we heard everything. Well, we hadn't. A week later she called back and she said a neighbor and some friends witnessed things in her home. Okay. We come back. And this is interesting. The house had a horrible odor to it. It smelled like decomposing organic matter or your old urine. And it was horrible. And it was really hot and humid in the house. No, not very good ventilation. And we're talking the doors in the kitchen. And the lower cupboard, one of the lower cupboard doors flies open and an iron skillet goes flying across the kitchen, dropping to the floor. And I looked in the cupboard to see if there were kids in there or an animal or springs or wires or anything, and there wasn't. That was the beginning when it started to get really intriguing, where we began taking what she was saying with a little more credibility. And that evolved into we worked on the case for 10 weeks. We were there usually a couple times a week, and we started seeing these weird lights in the house that had no source. And we'd seal the house off from all external lighting to get a better view of what was going on. And the, the, the colors were always lime green, greenish white, and moving very rapidly, like zipping around her bedroom, which is where most of the things happened. And okay, so we got one photo initially we could use, and it was a 35-millimeter SLR camera, and it looks like a comet with a tail on it. You can see this on my website. And it was amazing because we saw it and we got a photo of it. But that was just the beginning. But we couldn't tell where the light was coming from, where it went. Nor could we tell the speed of the light. We don't know the distance that it covered. So we were thinking what we should do. And then again, we were there, and a bunch of people were there with us, a number of professional photographers, friends of myself and friends of Carrie, and we were trying to make something happen rather than sitting around staring at the walls. We thought maybe that's what we could do to motivate or trigger an onset of these phenomena. And so we were holding a seance, for lack of a better term. The room got really cold for no apparent reason because there's no air conditioning in that place. And then these lights would appear again, and they zipping around green, lime green. And at one point, they coalesced in the corner where Doris's bed was. You can see this on my website. It's also in my book, Aliens Above, Ghosts Below. And it formed a very large band, well over six feet, maybe six, seven, six, eight. You can see the head, the upper torso, the armature, you know, the pectoral, the, you know, the triceps, the bite, all of that, and down the waist, and then you couldn't see anything. It lasted maybe a few seconds, and then boom, it was like a light going out. 
must have photographers must have fired hundreds of frames. Nope, nothing came out. But what did show up was not at all like what we saw. And on my website, in my book, you see Doris is sitting on a little bed, and there's an arc of bright light framing Doris, going bottom to bottom, complete, a perfect arc. And Kerry said something really interesting that I didn't even think at first. He said, notice that behind the arc, where the two walls meet at a 90-degree angle, the light is not bent in accordance with the wall. If the light was projected by a fraudulent mechanism, it would be bent. You'd see it, or you'd see a kink in the light. That didn't happen, which means the light was in free space. And there's a secondary light, which goes um, from bottom to bo bottom, no, uh, top to top, but it's inverted. And we never saw this. And then we took another couple other pictures of the bedroom where Doris was not even in the frame, the photo. And you see these arcs again. What are these? God only knows. So the case got really strange. Uh, we built, by, so by we the way, we, wait, yeah. excuse, me, excuse me, when you're in the room sure. and you're in these situations, I mean, uh -huh. when you tell the story, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. When uh -huh. you're there experiencing this phenomena firsthand, uh, what are you feeling? Astonishment. Um, I knew enough. I mean, I was only in, uh, at the time I was in graduate school, and I knew enough about science to know that lights, in order for light to happen, electrons have to jump from higher to lower orbits, meaning so energy's got to be put to use in some way. There was lights coming from nowhere, yet the house was blocked off from all external lighting. Um, an apparition of a very large man. Uh, I'm not frightened of these things. See, I'm frightened of things that I know that can hurt you, like crazy people with guns and knives, crazy people driving cars, wars, you know, murder. Thing. That scares me. This stuff, you could live a thousand generations and your unwife would be hung by it. It's sort of like a free ticket at Disneyland, except what happened to Doris. Right, and, and these, these attacks on her continued, correct? Right. Now, by the time we met Doris, uh, the raping, the ra rapes had ceased. But she she said things were still happening, and we sealed the house off from what we put on the bedroom walls and ceiling. By this time, we put black poster boards with duct tape forming a grid. So every black poster, piece of black poster had a number and a magnetic orientation. So if we're shooting... We could tell where something was, where it was coming from, where it was going to. It's a, basically, it's a reference system. And we didn't get much after that, except that we're in the bedroom one. This is weeks later. We're condensing all this into a short time. And uh, lights are bouncing all over the place. We're taking pictures, taking pictures. And we got hold of a well-known director, writer named by the name of Frank D. Felita. He produced or directed a show long before this called The Stately Ghosts of England. And I remembered it because it was such a really well done uh, documentary that aired on NBC. And uh, long, you know, 10, 12 years earlier, something like that. Um, so Frank comes out and he listens to Doris. And, he, you know, and Doris was much more open to communicate with her because he was more like a father figure rather than Carrie and I, which were like kids compared to her although we never knew her age, but she wasn't old, but she wasn't really young. 
um, the phenomena grew in intensity, and um, we put out the poster boards, as I said. And one night, about 1 a.m., Doris calls me, and she's screaming something tore the poster down. What? She said the water. And so we rush back to her house at like 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, and we see that all the poster boards have been torn down from the ceiling, the walls, everywhere. And some of the paint and plaster has been taken off as well. Now, obviously, Doris, who's a small woman like me, she's little, she could have gotten on a ladder and done it. But by her reaction and the way I saw things, I didn't think it would happen like it didn't happen like that. And so we finally put the boards back up. And another time we're there, and this is all in my article, in my book, all the chapter, I should say. And it was amazing because we, Carrie kept asking whatever was there, if you're here, show us, do something. Come on, do something now. Please do something. And suddenly the duct tape of some of the boards up on the ceiling were ripped off right in front of our face, and one of the poster boards flies and hits Doris in the head. Didn't hurt, hurt her, but it scared the daylights out of her. Uh, so again, there was no person we saw. No one was near that. You have to be in a ladder to do that. There was no ladder. I take it. So, kids, I take it her kids were pretty freaked out by this. Um, they were more upset because we were interrupting them playing records or watching television. Now Doris also had a fourth child, which was a girl. We never met the little. Very young. Doris was wise enough to keep her out of the house when all this was going on. When Carrie and I were there with other people. But the case was amazing. Um, one point, we got called back again late at night. Something had torn the fuse box out of the wall, ripped it out of the wall, and thrown it across the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, she moves a few months later. And uh, from Culver City to Carson. And she, we had not exposed her to the media because she would have made a terrible witness for many reasons. So she's there, and a few weeks go by. Actually, we didn't find her. Frank DeFolita found her. And go to a new place, and things are happening there. But her neighbors on each, on each side were flanking her house. They began experiencing paranormal phenomena, and they had never had it before. So why? It's almost like a radiant effect. Like, whatever she's doing is disrupting the physical environment, and it, it spreads if given enough time. Um, okay, so then the phenomena there, things flying around, uh, machines turning on and off, toilets flushing, um, things like that. So, Fra- so Frank uh, writes the, the book after all this mm-hmm, happens, correct? Right. right. He wrote the book, The Entity, and uh, I remember we spent a lot of time going over information, going into some detail, and at one point he said, this is, you know, it's a novel, it's not a documentary. And it's if you had all the money in the world and UCLA was really open to backing you guys, what would you have done differently? And I said, well, we would have taken Doris to a controlled clinical environment and conducted some experiments hoping to document something under those conditions. And But that didn't happen because UCLA never would have touched this. So the end of the, the idea of using, if, for people who have read his book and seen the movie, at the end of the film, we try to use liquid helium to basically restrain the process producing the light. 
with the apparition or the balls of life, whatever you want to call them. And because if you super cool atom uh, matter or energy, it slows down. And you might be able to inhibit it or at least be able to get a better access to what's going on. So that's where that came from. But, of course, that would be very dangerous. In the film, and, you know, you were there. We were making the film back in 81. Um, we used some liquid nitrogen on the set. And uh, it was really hot in, on one of the sound stages. And so I told the people, just vent it. I said, why? It's not corrosive. It won't affect your breathing. Um, it'll cool the set down, which it did. And, you know, um, but for all the negative uh, responses the movie got when it came out, negative reviews, uh, a lot of people thought it was misogynistic, which I don't agree with. But that's how they interpreted it. And Frank was very defensive about you know, what, against what people were saying about the film. Um, it was a little caustic in that regard. Um, well, the, 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 well idea, the idea of bringing science into the paranormal sphere is fascinating. And I think that, uh, as I recall, when uh, Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg came together to produce Poltergeist, once again, uh, a lot of their original research, uh, or the original research that's featured in the movie, comes from your world right and what's interesting about that particular element of it is that we poltergeist and the entity were shooting on the same lot in culver city separated by a little tiny street <laughs> we were and they were coming and seeing our rushes or dailies whatever you want to they were seeing what we were doing and they redid the film to make it look more like the entity and they were warned, I don't know if it was Frank DiFolito who was supposed to direct it, if he warned them or Sid Fury did, um, that if, if they incorporate a rape sequence into the movie, they're going to get sued. And in one of the scenes from Poltergeist, when Joe Beth Williams is relaxing in bed, something pulls her like um, wearing like a jersey shirt with a number on it, something pulls it back, and she's pushed up on the wall on the ceiling, and like she rotates through the room, and the whole bit and it was sexual implications, but it didn't go beyond that. Right. But everyone right. thought that Poltergeist was the entity case. I mean, there was one woman, which was Beatrice Strait, who was supposed to look in many ways was like Dr. Moss. And then there were two guys, meaning Carrie and I. So everyone thought it was the same and you know, it made more money. It came out before the entity did. Um, I remember I saw a work print of it, a screening at MGM and I know it was good. Very entertaining. I liked it. It was a little silly at points, but it's, it's a movie. It's, it's not it's a documentary. It's actually pretty scary, actually. I, I, it's, a, it's one of the movies I will not watch alone. Uh, of course, for you, it's, it's very clinical. For me, it's just freaky. Yeah. Um, so so um, when was the last time you had any communication with Doris? Well, Doris passed away, I think, in the late 90s. Oh, okay. um, we didn't know this. We we don't know what what happened was Frank would keep spending her money, and she kept moving from Culver City to Carson. Carson, either Riverside or San Bernardino, you know, then to Texas, and then she again. Then she came back to L.A. when the film came out. She saw a screen, we were at a screener a screening of it at Fox, and uh, she was there. And after that, she sort of disappeared. And we found out that she passed away, I think, in the late 1999 or something like that. Um, the, the, on the, the, uh, the determination of death, the cause of death, 
was cardiorespiratory arrest. Okay, well, that's what happened, but why did that happen? No one knows. Now, we do know now from interviews that two of her sons did with a friend of mine, uh, Javier Ortega, uh, and they said that there was phenomena around her prior to living in Culver City. They lived in Santa Monica. There were things happening there. They moved to Culver City, and we know what happened. We were all there. Then she moved and moved, and moved with her, and allegedly it kept happening around her at a much lower level, amplitude level, for years, and then it just stopped. Question is, if this was happening today, I would have, would have her run up on full medical workups. Um, right, you, ha- would have your, to your theory is that a lot of these paranormal activities are directly related to the uh, the mental state of the patient? Yeah, that's part of it. Everything I expected to learn when I first got in this field 52 years ago, I didn't learn. Everything I didn't expect to learn was thrown at me, basically. And the bottom line is it seems to be that with poltergeist cases, which is what I would describe the entity case as, not a haunting, but a poltergeist case, they are the result of an externalization of energy from a living person, in this case, Doris. Um, uh, Frank DiFolita alludes to this a little bit in his book, and in my chapter on the entity goes into this in great depth. It's no coincidence that she had three male children, one taller, bigger guy, and two younger, smaller ones. And the psychosexual you know, the applica- implications were quite obvious, the libidinal elements of it. Uh, and but it is paranormal, but what's so odd is that people that have these recurrences, they keep occurring again and again, it turns to be the majority are either seizure-prone or they're epileptic. However, most people who are seizure-prone or epileptic are not poltergeist agents. So that means somewhere in the middle, there's an unknown or missing variable. And it could be a person's inability to cope with stress their susceptibility to changes in the localized electromagnetic field can trigger this. And it's odd if they take medication to quell the seizures. It's very common that the phenomena shortly thereafter stops. So, so years go by, you and I lose touch for a while. And then as a publicist, I get assigned to a small independent movie uh, shooting of all places on the driveway of the old Sharon Tate mansion in Bel Air on Cielo right. Drive. Uh, uh, right. Mm-hmm. David right. Omen, David Omen, who was this would be producer's father, had built mm-hmm. a house right. on the driveway. And he, of course, mm-hmm. claimed that um, that he had seen the ghost of Jay Sebring in his lower bedroom. Right. So uh, being mm-hmm. a publicist and thinking this is. This is a crazy idea. The movie was called The House at the End of the Drive, and it was kind of thinly based on a, the idea that uh, a group of people move into this supposedly freaky haunted house, and then all of a sudden it's back in 1969, and killers are coming to the house. Not the Tate killers. It was fictionalized. But I had no idea how to promote this, but I thought to myself, wait a second, you know, maybe for a good feature article, I'll call up my friend Barry Taff. I haven't talked to him in years. And he'll come out and bring some instruments, and maybe we'll get a story out of it. So tell me, uh, tell me, <laughs> tell me what you discovered there. Well, 
going to the location, I, 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 it wasn't that far from where I lived, to be honest with you. It was like 15 minutes away without traffic. So I go up there, and um, I come to the house, and I start feeling kind of sickly. I just dizzy, kind of nauseous. Why do I feel sick? So I'm interviewing David Allman, and uh, he's, he's just somewhat cryptic and evasive. And when I dealt with certain me- the medical aspects, I always asked people about their medical history, their current medical condition, um, whatever, all of that, family history, blah, blah, blah. He sort of changed the subject. But that's not what was we were really dealing with. I visited that house over the course of one year 21 times. And out of 21 times, I got sick there 19 times. And we recorded then geomagnetic fields that are unheard of. Um, from the front of the house where the stairwell was, no, back of the house stairwell to the front of the house with the door, it was like a giant battery. You could hold the uh, wrought iron uh, railing going down the back. I could hold it, and it would make my hand and arm go numb. It run up into my neck, and I just let it go. And the measurements were very consistent. We were getting things that I've never seen before. And I learned a lot because this case helped clarify what my prior 40-some years of work had demonstrated. Yes, this is like the ultimate field laboratory. And that's why on my website, there are two articles. One is called uh, the Cielo Drive Conversion, the ultimate field laboratory. And the second one is called Cielo Drive 2. And Amazing things happened. While I was working there on an off for a year, a lot of people came through, visitors, friends of David, friends of friends of David, strangers, news people. And what was so interesting, and okay, all of them were younger than me, well, none of them had pre-existing medical conditions. And 68% of them got sick while they were there. And this is unprecedented. It's never happened and I kept having to go to Cedars after I left the house the next day. I was that sick. And they said, oh, you, you went to that house again? They knew me in the ER at Cedars. Why do you keep going if it makes you sick? Because I'm learning something. They said, but if you're dead, what good is it? I said, well, you got a point. So I I stopped going there uh, in, by July of 2006. I stopped. And well, I've been asked well, to go well, back. Barry, Barry when, yeah. uh, let me ask a question. And forgive me for being yeah, a little yeah. naive here. Some people today claim that Wi-Fi makes them sick. In fact, there was a story of a teacher in West L.A. who could not teach in a classroom with Wi-Fi, had to take her elementary school students out into the, into the, um, you know, the playground to teach them. And is, this, is this something similar or is it very different? It's probably very much related to what we're discussing. Um, it, it appears to be there are a number of variables involved with these phenomena. One is the person is like a seizure prone or epileptic, but also they would have to have a high, uh, what we call um, permeability. I mean, their body some, and somehow links up with the energy and it alters them in some way and makes them sick or makes them um, spacey or make them, uh, you know, they have an altered state of consciousness. They have trouble breathing. Their vision blurs, um, irritable, extreme irritability, and 
they're based on this now. We could manipulate an environment electromagnetically and trigger the phenomena, but that would, might result in the damage or death of witnesses, which you'll never do. We can't do that. But the susceptibility to this is really important because it may be the missing link. Why people, I had a friend of mine go to David Oman's house when I was working there, and he knew David. He went to school long before I knew him. And he, this friend of mine had been sick, very poor health. He was worried he'd get sick. He went there. He didn't feel anything, nothing. And I and, thought, and, 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 of course, and, of course, I was there over several right. days. Uh, right. but, but one of the things I found interesting is you handed me one of the cameras at one point to take right. some photographs of you mm -hmm. doing your measurements. And then when we looked right. at the photographs, there were all these orbs in the image. Right. And right. you said that was right. also right. a presence of some kind of paranormal activity. Well, here's the problem. With orbs, see, there are different types of orbs. There are luminous anomalies, which we saw in the entity case, which we witnessed at the David Omen house. Um, and those are paranormal. But then the orbs are the light. Before there was a digital photography, makes, uh, the, makes the system far more sensitive to low amplitude light levels. And dust particulates exposed to bright light that's near the lens might produce these little orbs of light. However, if you've got things that's zipping around like you're out in space seeing an asteroid or a comet go by, those aren't, you know, dust particles being illuminated. And, I mean, to, to prove this, you could stay in a real dark room, put on a flashlight, like an LED flashlight, and look right in front of the lens, you'll see all these little particulates flying around. There's dust everywhere. And there's no place other than a clean room where they build uh, satellites. There's dust everywhere. And this is how it shows up. But in the case of Damon Owen's house, we recorded some luminous anomalies there over time that were really extraordinary. And but see, it's not even that. I was walking out of the kitchen once. I was getting a drink of water, and and I someone said, "Hey, look!" A glass of water came flying over my shoulder and hit the wall, but there was no one in the kitchen. Um, that sounds but, a little bit like the case you told me about up in the Hollywood Hills. Right. The the, the probably. This the ending would be David Allman's case, but in terms of consistent phenomena was the Hollymont case, which was 1976. That's when I first went there, and my colleague at the time was Carrie Gaynor. On my website, you, uh, you read a really intricate, detailed article called The Hollymont Haunting, As Good As It Gets. There's two active earthquake fault lines almost link, they don't cross each other almost directly under the Hollymont house, which is 6221 Hollymont. Okay, and went up there, and neighbors witnessed things there, things flying around the house, lights turning on and off. Um, I was I got to live there for 10 days with my colleague back in 76, and it was, things were happening so quick we could barely keep track of them. A fire broke out in the bathroom upstairs. Um, got some weird lights. A news crew came out. They were chased out of the house by flying objects. Um, this is all on my website. It just, it, and then we discover there's a shallow river under the house. And further down, 
turns out there's a body buried there from 1922, a woman named Regina. The neighbor uh, was renovating his house, and he was leaning against a built-in bookshelf, and it, I can't believe it went in. He, What's this? He went down there with his friends, and they found the passageway that connected the homes from the Prohibition era. And they found a tombstone named Regina, and 1922, uh, you're not allowed to bury people in your backyard, ever. Well, before there was any civilization, maybe, but not in, uh, in L.A. And the last time I was at the, at the uh, Hollymont house was 2008, taking measurements. Um, a lot of it had been completely upgraded. A lot of things have been changed there. Um, and one of the most amazing things that happened to Hollymont, back in 76, there. I'm in the um, the pantry, and suddenly things are falling. Pennies, hundreds, maybe thousands of pennies are raining down. But from where? There's a ceiling above me, and it hurt. It was pelting me, so I got back, and the floor filled up with pennies. Um, I don't know who lives there now. The house has been completely uh, rebuilt because it was a lot of bad water erosion was there. So they put in new ducting. They put in new electrical systems, they put in, I don't know if I said they put in air conditioning, um, but I don't even know if the place is lived in anymore, but it was selling for like oh, well over a million dollars. But I wonder if that takes into account that there's something, someone living there you can't see. <laughs> well, if you pay a million dollars, you, you might get pennies no. back on your dollar. Right, literally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's interesting is that uh, we were leaving, just about to leave in 2008, and I got packing up my Pelican cases with the instruments, and I pick it up, turn it so I could grab the handle, we're about to leave, and I go, what's this? On the bottom of my Pelican case, one of them, something had been carved into it very deeply, which did not exist before I went to the house, and it was a lazy R, a backwards R. I went, R, that's Regina. What? But who did it? Now, one in of order your, to carve One of your theories is that high levels of electromagnetic radiation can uh, are, are present in homes where there's paranormal activity, and that uh, what I think I get it that um, these levels of electromagnetic radiation caused by either earthquake faults or underground rivers or whatever could open up a door. And is that, is that somewhat accurate? Yeah. To, yes, but it goes even stranger than that, Steve. It's just interesting. Okay, the, the, pheno the energy that produces the phenomena we're describing, like the apparitions in the entity, the luminous anomaly, the, uh, the, the yeoman case with all the strange physical phenomena going on there, and the Hollymont case, the energy that produces the, these phenomena is not electromagnetic, nor is it gravitational, nor is it nuclear. But the energy that's the way the phenomena couples with us is through our magnetic field. So it's using something in the environment is what allows it to happen. But it doesn't make any so what there is no when you get rid of electromagnetism and gravity and nuclear forces, there's nothing left. Um, there just isn't. In the San Pedro case, 
a six foot two, 190 pound man was picked up and thrown in the wall like a ragdoll. Now, the entities that we know of, you know, the forces we're familiar with, long before that could be made to happen, you'd be burned to death. You'd be incinerated by released energy. That does not happen if anything in the place gets cold, as opposed to hot. So there's another type of energy that produces phenomena that mimics electromagnetism, but it isn't electromagnetic or nuclear or gravitation. And, you know, I remember one night at the David Omen case, and we got a storm coming in, and it lightning and thunder, oh, this is great. And suddenly my skin started burning, and I took some measurements. I got two kilovolts per meter. That's it. I'm going. I would feel like burning to death here. Thank you. And I've been offered. Uh, I was uh, a guy had a show wanted me to go to David's house do a shoot there. I said there is no incentive you can offer me that will get me to go back to David Olman's house because if let's say the guy bought me a 918 Porsche, which is what I suggested, I said if I'm dead I can't use the car, or if I'm you know, turned into a vegetable I can't use the car. So there's no force. And what's odd, two friends of ours, Lori and John, you know what I'm talking about, right? Lori yes. Jacobson. So I've known Lori since 94. And uh, they came to the house. And I hadn't told them anything up front of what the physical phenomenon, the effects it has on people. And Lori felt a little lightheaded, and when she got over it, John came in the house. And he said it felt like something hit him in the head and the gut with a baseball bat. And he had to go out and he got really sick. Yet other people went in there, like like you and others, they didn't feel anything. So it means that whatever this force is, you're not susceptible to it. But you had stuff around you, right? You saw over, over the years the big to vanish, remember? Yeah, no, no. I've had situations where, where things yeah. vanished into thin air and I I, uh, I, uh, I, it's so funny because uh, I'm sitting in my office, or I should say standing in my office at the moment because right. I have a standing desk. And right. uh, about two weeks ago, the little uh, plastic container that I put my vitamins in disappeared from mm -hmm. my desk, which is odd because <laughs> I always put it right next to my vitamins. You know, right. th there's no right. other place mm -hmm. for it to be. Right. Well, it was gone for two weeks. And all of a sudden this wow. morning, I look at it and it's sitting right in the middle of my desk. So I, I'm, I'm, I find this very quizzical. Uh, there's so many things out there. Uh, you know, for those of you who have just started listening, we're talking with Barry Taft, Dr. Barry Taft, one of the foremost authorities in the country on para, para, uh, para, uh, paranormal phenomenon. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I can't even say it right. <laughs> uh, but Barry, this has been fascinating. It's always great talking with you because I – always feel like I'm talking to somebody who's as curious about this stuff as I am. And it's not a case of trying to, you know, sell books or, or pretend you're some right. kind of, uh, you know, expert. You are an expert right. and and you know this stuff. And I find it interesting that nothing ever really frightens you either. No, I mean, I used to I used to race cars professionally, road race. You can die in a heartbeat. If that doesn't scare you, nothing will. So uh, I just, you know, I'm scared about things I know to be harmful. You know, we remember the old uh, comedy store on Sunset? Sure. Well, I, without, decades ago I was there, and coins were falling again. Pennies were falling from nowhere. 
And I said, well, can, can't they make it dollars? And one last thing, in two, 1972, a case in Van Nuys, a nice Jewish family, beautiful home, they were finding money, $10, $20, $50, $100, floating down from the ceiling. New real money. Did they keep it? Yes. Did they declare it? No. I said, look, if you get tired, I'll move in. And I'll keep the money. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, for all the strangeness of it, it's, sometimes it's very helpful. Oh, one last thing. Um, I went to David Holmes' house 21 times over the course of a year, which is a lot. And since that ended in July of 2006, phenomena began happening around me that I never had before, ever. So I think being there, the reason it made me sick, it altered me in a way we, don't, we do not yet understand. And this is what's causing the ongoing things. And I lived in L.A. It was going on for years before I left L.A. Um, the hospitals, it was going on. Uh, my friend's houses, it was going on. I leave everything fine. So now I'm sort of part of the mechanism. So for those of you who are interested, Barry's book uh, is called Aliens Above, Ghosts Below, Explorations of the Unknown. It was published by Cosmic Pantheon Press. Um, Barry, uh, if people want to reach out to you, could you repeat your website? It's www.barrytaff.net. And Taff is spelled T as in Tony A-F-F. Barry, this has been terrific. Thank you for coming on Saturday night at the movies. I think uh, I, I want to have you on again because you're always sure. you always have a great story to tell and you have great comments. I appreciate that, Steve. It's great, and it's a matter that you know. And we, for people who don't know, you and I knew each other. We were kids. Remember? I know. I know. We used to go to the old stadium movie theater on Pico near Livonia. And uh, exactly. Yeah. We saw those wonderful science fiction double features on Saturday mornings. You were right. probably a lot braver than I was, though. Uh, I, I couldn't take the horror ones. Yeah, I mean, horror films are boring. I don't know, just like sci fi makes me think. Right. Horror films, I go, uh, you know, it's only horror films I liked. To any degree, with the old Universal one, you know, the, the, um, the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, Frankenstein. As a kid, then I go, oh, okay, yeah, big deal. There you go. Look, there you watch, go. Well, watch, you know, that's, watch, yeah, that's classic. Yeah, watch cinema. the news. Yeah, I said, watch the news. That'll scare you. <laughs> oh yeah. Always fun going on the insanity in the world. That will scare the hell out of you. Well, we've come to the end of our show. Everybody, okay. welcome. Welcome to uh, thank you for listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. We always have fun. I think uh, we had we really had fun with you tonight, Barry. Thank you again, and we'll My be pleasure. talking soon. Okay, thanks a lot, Steve. Bye bye.